The Guardian. I'm Matt Wells and this is Media Talk coming up with tyrants toppled and dictators deposed. We hear from our man in Libya about reporting on the extraordinary events in the Middle East. Also in the podcast, former Tory party chairman Chris Patton is set to replace Michael Lyons at the BBC Trust. Plus, Facebook prepares to take on the Daily Mail while the Telegraph gets set to start charging for its online content. And... Are we going to have an affair? Yeah. Okay. Everything zen? Danny Cohen doesn't think so, as the new BBC One controller axes the Italian detective drama. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. Well, it's Oscars week, and with the King's Speech, the Red Hot favourite to sweep the board in Hollywood, we have pod royalty in the pod this week, Dan Saber and bona fide Australian Stephen Brooke. Uh, how are you, Dan? Uh, yeah, very well. Head of media at The Guardian and Stephen Brooke, ex of this parish. Yes, good. Are Been doing a bit of radio with perfect diction this week. Are you paying thank the bills? You. Yeah, scraping uh, by. Thank you uh, both. And thank you to Stephen for holding the fort last week. You'll be pleased to know that uh, I'm back at the gym following the uh, incident. Uh, anyway, more fun and products later. Uh, we'll start the week with more serious matters. Since the turn of the year, anti-government protests in Tunisia, Egypt and now Libya have been dominating the news agenda. As the revolutions have unfolded on 24-hour news channels and live on the web, Twitter has been a key way of spreading information, social networks too. Uh, but what has it been like reporting from the front line? It's been very difficult to get into Libya, for example. The Guardian's Martin Chulov, though, was one of the first Western journalists to get into Benghazi, if not the first, actually. This is the seat of the revolution, of course. Martin Chulov is on the line now. Um, it must have been quite a journey, Martin, to actually get in there. Tell us how you managed it. Well, it was... Uh pretty straight-up six-hour drive from Alexandria to the Saloum crossing into Libya. That's when things did get interesting, though. It's, uh, the crossing was high on a plateau just out of town. It was teeming with literally tens of thousands of people wanting to travel in both directions. The Libyan side of the border, the officials had all left. There wasn't a soul there, and it was very unusual for Egyptian officials to let people through, especially Western nationals without visas. But they did so. Uh, a bit of arguing about why we were going, who we were credentialed to, and on, on we went. Uh, it was a three-kilometre walk into a no-man's land. We were met on the other side by a, almost a neighbourhood watch who was set up to see who was coming in. Uh, they figured out I was a reporter pretty quickly, and uh, they, they welcomed us in. So from there, it was a, a nine-hour overland drive through towns that uh, don't often get visited by Western reporters. Uh, all towns had man checkpoints used with Kalashnikovs and bandanas. I guess a bit unsettling at first, but once they worked out who we were and why we were going, we were welcomed. Uh, they were looking for internationalized. They wanted their story told. And when we got to Benghazi, it was, it was the same story. It was it were people that were very enthusiastic to see the international press you know, in their hometown. They tried to put us on their shoulders. They've, they've been very hospitable the whole way through. They've given us anything we wanted in terms of access, in terms of logistical help. And they see the international media presence here as a, as a very important part in furthering their revolution. It's still a dangerous place, though, isn't it? Because uh, one of the government ministers said that uh, international journalists who were in Libya without permission uh, would be treated as outlaws. How do you feel about doing your job? You feel safe in Benghazi, but what? Uh, I guess Tripoli is still pretty much out of bounds. I don't think any of us are planning on heading west of Benghazi at this point. This city has been sacked. The opposition forces do run things. There are still regime loyalists here, but they are laying low. So in terms of getting out, out and about and telling our story, we can do it. Uh, we can get the business done here. We can go to the hospitals. We can go to the morgues. We can go to the opposition hubs. 
and we can reflect the fact that this city is in opposition hands. Any further west at this point is a little bit variable. You know, it wouldn't be terribly prudent to run into a loyalist checkpoint at this time, given what the ministers have said about foreign reporters being in the country without a visa. I mean, the whole story of the downfall of despotic regimes in the Middle East is an extraordinary one to cover, isn't it? I mean, how, how has it been from a kind of personal point of view? It's the first time I've been in a city that's been sacked. I mean, I've done a lot of reporting in the in the Middle East over the last six years and a lot in Southeast Asia as well. And you, you do see a lot during that time. You see the, the best and the worst of human nature. But in this story, you do feel that you are really amongst something that is significant in the broad sweep of history. To see what had happened to the military base yesterday, which was the, you know, one of the citadels of Gaddafi's regime, I mean, one of the vestiges of his power, and the house that he used across the road, utterly destroyed by several thousand rampaging citizens who had used bulldozers to breach the walls and had destroyed every last image of him inside, that his posters had been taken down and his, the stage where he used to address the masses had been destroyed as well. So you do get the sense that what is happening here is is truly historic, that after 42 years of sadistic oppression, a pressure valve has been lifted. What you're seeing with the people here is is, is almost an outpouring of both joy, both anger, both rage. But at the same time, it's a a truly exciting time for them as well. Martin, uh, thanks very much. Martin Chuloff on the line from Libya. Dan, Obviously now uh, with international media organisations getting into at least part of Libya, we're getting a fuller picture with pictures and first-hand accounts. But before then, this was a really difficult story to cover and was being covered through the, the, through the means of, of social media, which is an interesting development. Uh, very interesting. You know, c- compare and contrast with Egypt. You know, pictures every day of the crowds in Tahrir Square. Here in Libya, we've seen almost, you know, almost no pictures. Some pictures of Gaddafi and the family on Libyan state television, and then some sort of grainy, you know, mobile phone type footage for the rest. So, we've been relying on some reports. You know, it's impressive in a way. We've got some kind of consensus account, but it's been so difficult to sort of work out what's going on until, or, or feel like you're getting a clear picture until the last 24 hours or so. Yeah, and, and I guess Stephen, for journalists who are covering the story, it is possible to, there are ways of verifying stuff that comes out on Twitter, that footage that's posted to YouTube, but it, it, it's difficult and, and not always the same sort of skills that, that journalists would have used before. Exactly, and what's, what we're getting now, which we didn't have, which is vital, are these first-hand accounts, and that's the oldest form of journalism that there is in a country that had banned journalists for so long and had a regime that was very anti-Western gratifying to hear Martin's account of the people welcoming him in and he can now tell us what he sees and I think that that's got to take primacy now if they can get enough now the press are in there if they can get news crews in there and television cameras etc etc and this is a story in a way Libya's a famous country isn't it? it has this really strong news value because of all the stories have come out over the years and you know has even made the front pages of the tabloid so intense worldwide interest in what's going on there mm. what has happened and what's going to happen in the coming weeks what, what we've seen is quite interesting the incredibly fragmentary nature of this you know information you know it's, uh, people sort of ringing into relatives in the uk with their own accounts which you then sort of passed on passed on second hand and you know in this sort of unfolding situation everybody's story is unique so you know it's quite a fascinating form of journalism we've had here almost more like a sort of 
well, dare one say it, it's almost like a form of citizen journalism, if you will, that's sort of been mediated well, through the I mean, press. I I'm, you know, you know is what we've seen, I guess. Really, yeah. Because there are no journalists there, all the reports that you get are first-hand accounts from people of what they see, which can be really gripping, can't they? Yes. Those, you know. It makes a welcome contrast to the sort of slightly stultifying debate we had on, on Newsnight, although it did have, of course, Alan Rusbridger, our brilliant editor, yeah. involved. <laughs> but, but where everyone kind of agreed with each other far too much, uh, uh, that was on Tuesday night, I think Lionel Barber from the FT was there, Mark Thompson, and Peter Barron from Google and so on and everyone seemed to be united in agreeing how terrible citizen journalism was by and large I think Alan wasn't so sure and it struck me as a totally inappropriate point to kind of for the journalist trade union to sort of gang up and make these comments when we were reliant on the information we were getting from Libya we were reliant on, on, on ordinary people in the and, ground and, the and, and, and quite brave people who decided that, who realised that the only way that they were going to get any attention was to go out there and, and film it on their phones Yes I mean wouldn't that be great if that happened in China which is mm. the next incredibly repressive anti-journalism regime where they've got scores of journalists who've been put into jail purely by exposing government corruption and you just wonder whether it's going to hit that brick wall or, or whether the sentiments and the uprising of the citizens is going to travel any further. Okay, uh, thanks very much. We'll leave that there. Uh, Martin Chulov is a must-follow on Twitter. His Twitter handle is just at Martin Chulov, C-H-U-L-O-V. Uh, follow him. Uh, you can keep up to date with all, all the latest developments, of course, in the Middle East and Libya and everywhere else at guardian.co.uk. Okay, time to round up some of the other media stories from the past seven days. And Elizabeth Murdoch is joining the Board of News Corporation after her company Shine was bought for £450 million. This is a real nice work if you can get it story, Dan, isn't it? Because she left News Corporation, of course, some time ago to set up Shine. B Sky B gave her a sweetheart content deal, uh, which was the foundation of her business, then her business gets built up and then they buy it back again. It's probably always going to happen that way as well, I think. Uh, Look, she's done very well out of it in that sense and her stake, when all said and done, will be worth something like 200 million quid. The share is about half the business. Yeah, it's very nice and she got money from her dad on the way to help buy up other production companies. But, 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 you know what? Shine is still a sort of well-run, large indie. Uh, It has in particular in Kudos, you know, one of the, you know, most fabulously creative independent production companies, even if you don't like Outcast very much. <laughs> seems to think it's a bit of a dud. Yes. You've got, you know, you've got Spooks and Hustle and Ashes to Ashes and all the rest of it. So you've got a long rush of quality content. And Liz has retained those. You know, she's bought the companies and retained the creative talent. So she, th- there's a lot of smart stuff that's, that, you know, she's she's shown that she can run a business actually. And yeah, sure, she would never have got that job if her surname hadn't been Murdoch. But she's made something of the opportunity she's been given. Interestingly, when she left Sky in 2000, she gave the obligatory exit interview. It was with Janina Newmat. Was it? Yes. It was not. I didn't. I don't. I've ever met. I, I, it was well, with, with Janina. Okay, your your has just been shoved in there as some <laughs> sort of charity or something. I don't know. Anyway, interesting quote from that interview where she says. I'm never leaving the family business. And she talked about how when she set up a new company, Shine, I think was probably just the, you know, the plan might have been there. The name certainly wasn't then. Uh, she said, I'm going to have lots of ties with News Corp and lots of interaction with the people that I'm going to work with in the company. So in a way, I think that it she was... She was always clear about it. Yeah, she was always clear about it. It was always on the cards. Um, interestingly, there's been this huge now consolidation of part of the TV industry, but the complaints that have been attached to... 
Sky Corp and B Sky B, it seemed to be largely absent. We must do the obligatory read-in to the uh, Murdoch succession plan, Dan. Where do the cards lie now? Well, I think it was time for her to come back in the business from that point of view. Uh, why? Look, Rupert's going to be 80 in a couple of weeks' time. Clearly, must remember the card. Yes, so we're clearly <laughs> baking a cake. Like it or not, and of course he'll live forever, but like it or not, succession is sort of moving into view. Mm. She's been an observer on the board for some time, but but this firstly formal, you know, gives her a seat on the board and much more significantly she doesn't report to James Murdoch. I was just going to say how will she get on with James but but, but she doesn't report to him. She's quite quite elegantly not reporting to James and reporting to Chase Carey i.e. into New York and round so look she's not you know I think James Murdoch is he, he's still the heir presumptive uh, he's still ahead of her in the business for sure he's got a larger operation to run but she's there and that's uh, you know and her voice is, counts at this time. Uh, and all a the- nice little coda to that is, guess who is the new interim chief executive of Network 10 in Australia? Lachlan Murdoch. Oh, God, I forgot what had happened to him. Yeah, well, Isn't he the one with the tattoos? He does have a sort of Celtic snake tattoo, yeah. which goes up his rather well-honed bicep. Yeah. Though the fact is that um, you know he is a, a player now in the Australian media scene and has got a shareholding in that network and um, you know is creeping back up again. Okay, we'll see how that all, all plays out. Um, well, Outcasts, of course, you mentioned Outcasts. Uh, it's been shunted to the margins of the schedules, hasn't it, on BBC One by new controller Danny Cohen. Uh, and he's also axed, or rather not recommissioned, Zen. I am absolutely aghast. I loved Zen. I thought it was fantastic. You probably uh, it divides opinion. How does it divide opinion a lot in this in this room? Look, I haven't seen Zen, so I'm not going to speak to that. But you know, Danny went out early doors and spoke to the Mail on Sunday, off the thinly disguised, off the record lunch, and started talking about comedy being too middle class on the BBC. And he's making his mark very fast. And I suspect, or one senses, he wants to take the channel to quite a sort of mainstream. A sort of non-metropolitan perspective, which for Danny, who is kind of the ultimate metropolitan insider in broadcasting, is quite. What does he know about non-metropolitan? <laughs> do you uh, do well, you watch Zen? I didn't. I watched oh, a bit of Zen, well. and I it didn't grab me, but I can see how a lot of people did like it. But you know, it's obviously. It's new channel controller-itis, isn't it? I'm now here. There's been a bunch of stuff that was commissioned not by me. I'm going to dump that for stuff that I want to really make. Interestingly, the, the big uh, sort of runaway success of the, of the winter season has not been a BBC show or an ITV show, but a Channel 4 show, Big Fat Gypsy Wedding, which that came out of a, a one-off documentary, didn't it, which they then turned into a series. And now there's all sorts of sp- sp- spin-offs being planned. It's extraordinary. Success has surprised everyone uh, for that program. I found it fascinating, actually, and I think I learned a lot about a group of people I don't really know that much about. If you look beyond the very garish spectacle of... Well, this is the debate about this programme, whether it is exploitative or revelatory. Well, it's both, and all television's exploitative, Matt. I mean, you're exploiting me now, sitting here in this podcast. (laughs) That's how the media works. (laughs) I hope hope you're getting paid, Brookie. Who'd have thought that the Brits, you know, My Big Fat Gypsy Wedding outrated the Brits by over two million, I think, uh, Mm. uh, on Brits Night last week. So this has been the most extraordinary success you you wouldn't have predicted. There's certainly a lot of upset amongst the sort of the traveller and Romany communities about this programme, particularly the sort of talk of this practice of grabbing, you know, men just sort of grabbing women they like, and 
and, and supposedly picking them for partners and I don't know I'm sure all sorts of things go on at sort of you know in all kinds of suburban discos nevertheless <laughs> nevertheless <laughs> to that extent it sort like of it, you know it, I think it's just a classic kind of roundabout you get around a hit really and uh, we're going to see a lot more of it I mean I think the worry is that now Channel 4 seem to be talking about certainly uh, Christmas by Big Fat Gypsy Christmas well, that's fine but an awful lot of other spin-off shows mm. so let's hope we don't you know rapidly move from being an accidental hit to celebrity shark bait territory yes well quite yes well, uh, the purity of an observational documentary will be very quickly lost if they go down that road yeah, yeah definitely. I bet you they will let's do a, a line on facebook and the daily mail because i mentioned it at the beginning dan uh, you've written about this to, uh, i would explain what it's about well, there's some, there's, some, there's some serious scratchiness between between Facebook and the Mail. This dates back to last week, Friday's front page of the Mail. This is down in Torbay. It's to do with a sort of a child sex ring, as they might say, in the Mail. Uh, what happened was was that there was a Devon Cornwall police that sort of come up with an investigation where uh, they'd arrested one guy, a 19-year-old called Jake Ormerod, who's supposedly involved in a wider child sex ring, maybe 20 kids affected. They've written to 14,000 parents in the area, so a full-on local storm. Uh, anyway... <laughs> Here's the kind of point of dispute. Well, guess what? This young lad and some friends of of his, they used Facebook and they had Facebook pages and all that sort of stuff. And and the male were very keen to get sort of talk about it as a Facebook child sex gang, which is what they did in the splash headline of uh, on that Friday of last week. Facebook think this is outrageous that these people... Uh, were using Facebook much as in you know in the way that anyone who has a Facebook page yes they would use it to contact to communicate with friends but not as a grooming tool mm. now there seems to be some initial uncertainty out, uh, uh, from the police so I think used a fairly ambiguous formal words that maybe they use Facebook or didn't as a grooming tool the police now seem to be a bit firmer that that wasn't the case so Facebook had written a threatening letter and the mail are fairly unamused and say we stand by our story and, 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 and so we have a kind of standoff and I think well, there's, a, there's a real culture yeah. clash here's the thing there's really interesting is there's a real culture clash between old and new media here the male loves and did in the following days would do anything to sort of really throw a story together which has some sort of you know people do terrible things online and they're all on Facebook and whack Facebook in the headline and Facebook's view is well people are people and we're a neutral platform and if people do terrible things online it's not us who's promulgated or made that happen we just happen to be the thing that they're, they're using that's just like the gun lobby saying guns don't kill people people kill people <laughs> yeah. yeah but wait whoa, whoa, whoa. this is social networking not shooting though yeah exactly yes but <laughs> Uh, look, why did the Mail get so interested in this? Because companies write legal threatening stories to newspapers all the time. Letters, and yes. I think there's a peculiar sort of combination of the fact that it's us, the Guardian, writing about the Daily Mail and Facebook having a stoush that, uh, whereas, you know, if it was a less sexy topic for a less sexy newspaper, then maybe we wouldn't be doing that. The crucial point I want to make is, is that the people have groomed children on Facebook and the re- original story was the Peter Chapman case where he befriended Ashley Hall on Facebook and did kill her mm. and was sentenced for 35 years jail so I think that you know this stoush but I guess, I guess Dan's is what's going on it's a bit of a Facebook's, side issue Facebook's point is well what, you know what can you do about that There's, you, know, you can't stop to stop people behaving in a criminal way well the Lib Dems and part of the Home Office suggested that there should be the child exploitation unit said that there should be a panic button put on social networking websites 
and uh, they've been advocating that for quite a while. I think Facebook is resisting that. Mm. I, I got a lot of feedback on my story. Not all, not all of it uniformly positive? Not all of it. Uh, I'm tempted to say savoury, but, but, but what I've discovered is there's a whole community of people. This is all a bit weird. There's a whole kind of sort of set of vigilante websites that kind of set themselves up claiming that we monitor Facebook pages of known paedophiles or you know people who've been caught up you know who are distributing child pornography we monitor these pages and we we publish their details and they moralize about how awful they are it's sort of anonymously put together super quite well researched but you kind of look at it and, and of course the read between the lines message is well if you want to sort of find unsavory photographs on the internet if you sort of follow the profiles that are listed here and maybe follow your nose a bit you'll find something there's a kind of just this surprisingly large sort of community of activity around here a kind of demi-monde that is uh, very uneasy about it. Interesting. Uh, all right, let's have a quick word about the uh, Telegraph's plans to apparently to uh, start charging for online content, particularly on the desktop. A, a metering system seems to be in play, uh, uh, doesn't it? Dan, you called it. A, uh, it, it it's, it's less of a paywall and more of a pay fence. Yeah, with the fence somewhere in the distance, uh, a white picket fence, presumably. Yeah. Look, I, getting getting information out of the Telegraph and it's sort of you know, business. Hard on Libya. Yeah, hard, <laughs> about as tough as Libya. Yeah, uh, uh, no one's for sh- sure what's going to happen, but it, you know, uh, and what's interesting is every paper is sort of slightly read into it their own worldview. So, so you see, the FT seems to think of it as a bit more of a paywall, and we're not so sure. Uh, from what we can understand, it's really about rewarding the loyal readers. So, what what the Telegraph doesn't want to do is the reader who's got a subscription to the Telegraph. Uh, uh, should have some exclusive content or some sense that they have unfettered access to the website. You know, the loyal Telegraph web reader maybe ought to be encouraged to subscribe to the paper product, whereas the, you know, the flyby reader is looking for a couple of stories on Colleen Rooney. Well, interestingly enough, in what came out of the New York Times piece on James Murdoch, when Rebecca Brooks said, the, you know, the only thing she practically did say was that we're looking upon this business much more as a subscription business and that's exactly what James instituted very strongly when he was at Sky and it seems that whilst News International papers are now going down that route of of making it uh, it's all about the subscriber it seems that Telegraph with its long history of print subscribers might be pushing that over into the digital sphere. When is this coming, briefly, Dan? Do, uh, any any well, word? We think maybe September. Okay, well, uh, well, we'll wait and see. Uh, you can read more about all of these stories that I've just mentioned at mediaguardian.co.uk. Finally this week, uh, the job interview from hell is over and Culture Secretary Jeremy Hunt has chosen his new apprentice. Sorry, uh, his top pick for the role of chairman at the BBC Trust. Lord Patton is the man the Culture Secretary has selected, we believe, to take over from Sir Michael Lyons. Dan, will Lord Nay Chris Patton, will he be a smart choice, do you think? It looks like it. He's, he, he seems to be, he's, he's a Tory uh, who Labour Party don't seem to mind very much. Uh, so He's a bit of a lefty Tory. Yeah, he, you know, he, he, and that's so superficially as a consensus candidate, there's been very little political kickback. What, what, what's interesting was there was talk of a kind of right-wing revolt against Patton, but but when we really pressed the right-wingers of the Tory party quite hard, we found out that no, not only did they, were they no more than mildly dischuffed, uh, <laughs> Uh, they felt very much that this was being used as a straw man to allow Hunt to say this is a sort of centrist kind of appointment. That said, uh, you know it is Pat. Look, Pat's a big. F- you know he's a big figure. He's done a lot of big jobs in, you know, in public life. 
wife. He's probably the kind of guy that the BBC needs. He's certainly a new classic BBC chairman mould. You know, he's a grand, he's a grandee, isn't he? Who, he's a grandee. And Christopher can, Bland type sort of person. Very, yeah. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Stand up for the corporation, stand up against it. You know, we'll, we'll see how he goes. Any money, he'll go native and probably be good for the BBC. A former governor of Hong Kong, former chairman of the Conservative Party. Have I got that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. uh, so a very experienced politician and diplomat, of course. Uh, famous for uh, cr- crying, Stephen. Do you remember when uh, – uh, you probably don't. You're probably too young – when when Britain and you were probably in Australia, so they I was probably watching Neighbours at the time. At the time. Uh, when uh, when, Ho- when Hong Kong transferred back to China, um, well, one thing I do think I remember, and I now might embarrassingly get wrong, was didn't he have some kind of stoush with a News Corp over his book so on did. China? Yeah, because he wrote a book a book about China, which was critical. And uh, Dan, you'll pick up there because I can't remember the rest of it. Oh, it, it wasn't was un- published. It, it was, was un- it, it was not. It was not published. HarperCollins refused to publish. It, it. it was refu- it refused to publish. Rupert Murdoch said. Subsequently, it was sort of editing kind of dispute at what everyone else said was, no, he just, Rupert was trying to get into China and he didn't want Chris Patton queering the pitch. So challenges for, for, for Patton, should he get the job? Raising morale at the organisation, making sure that this sort of cost reduction is done in a way not to really sort of undermine quality, making the move to Salford work, you know, stopping some of the crazy... I think some of the crazy moves out of London, but recognising how important it is, just sort of really, you know, keeping the BBC in good health and order. You know, this is... You know, something one should pass on to the next person in good shape. There is a suggestion, isn't there, that that the trust model hasn't worked. So he's got he's going to have to make the governance model work, isn't he? Yeah, I think so. Although I'm sure if he wanted to stay on, he'd be rewarded with whatever model he 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 wants at the end of it. I, I think he's got to be a bit tougher on Mark Thompson, or at least be seen to be. But also, when uh, when the brown stuff hits the fan, he needs to be more, frankly, just more active, qu- quicker on telly, if you like, defending the organisation. I think there are big issues, obviously, facing the BBC. And uh, the Trust it seems to be a, a bit too fond of issuing reports. You know, not enough comedy on BBC One and, you know, BBC One Daytime needs to sort of tune up a bit. I think there are broader and more important issues. One thing I've never understood about that job is why it's only four days a week. Isn't it? Uh, hasn't it been made a full-time job yet? No, no, hasn't, no, has it? no. no he's going to he's going to carry on as Chancellor of Oxford University. I, I have no idea. How if that's, will he, How will he manage it? I know it's hard or a doddle, but I bet it's on the easy side. I bet it is. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you to Dan and uh, for that and Stephen. Before we uh, go, give us something uh, tasty as a parting gift. What have, what have you What have you been up to this week, Stephen? I've, well, I've actually us? rather held my own attention this week. <laughs> I have to confess. Is that a euphemism? <laughs> No, no, I've actually been occupied, preoccupied in getting myself a new job. All oh, right. And, and ha- have you got a new job yet? I have got a new job, yes. And can you tell us what it is? I can't. It's going to be announced uh, on, uh, over the weekend, so check your social media feeds. Check Media Garden, hopefully, for, which ought to be first with the news, shouldn't it, really? Dan, you, well, you, you, you've been writing about this um, new website that's up and running from the Media, media Standards Trust. Oh, gosh, it's got me into trouble, I tell you. Uh, well, I've learned that I thought a pajazzle didn't exist. Well, I learned what a pajazzle might be, and now, of course, I've been offered one. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've, got a, I've got a press release from a PR agency asking if I'm game enough would I like to uh, have a pajazzle and they do exist and very popular inc- increasingly popular amongst men are you sure this is not a media standards trust hoax? Have you checked well, out their bona fides? Of course, I think it's a hoax, but I fear <laughs> I fear that it's not. I fear it's not a hoax. And what was nonsense? Yes, in in true, you couldn't make it up. Um, Day to day style. Yeah, yeah. You, what was nonsense was, yesterday is truth today. Welcome to the modern media. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, all right, uh, you should try out with that website. Actually, you you feed in a press release and it, and, it, and it tells you where it's been reproduced in 
in in the media. It's quite kind of like a reverse paper shredder. Isn't it, it is like a reverse paper shredder. That's exactly it's, it's, it's not a bad idea. The website actually. Yeah, very good. Thank you very much. Thank you to uh, both Stephen Brook and uh, lastly to Dan Saber. There, you'll find links to pretty much everything we've discussed at uh, Guardian.co.uk/slash/media-talk. And if you thought that things sounded especially slick this week, it's because we had not one but two producers, uh, Ben Green and Ian Chambers. Uh, I'm Matt Wells. See you next time. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.